it kind of circles back to what was mentioned earlier. Um, the question is, can I smoke it? Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Tyler, and you'll be joining me in a discussion on magical ecology. This will be adding elements of the fantastic to the natural world of your setting. From new animals on the farm, predators in the wilds, or new plants to fill your setting. Today, joining me are Adam, Immokinate, and Red, if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourselves. Hey, my name's Adam. I am vice editor-in-chief at the magazine and help out here and there with the podcast as well. Uh, I do a bunch of other fun stuff too, like some game design over at Smunchy Games and uh, getting into user interface design, which is super fun. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Hello, hello. I am a Mackinate, also known as Ian Arnatividad. I'm the editorial chair here at World Building Magazine and a freelance editor and writer. And uh, I love world building, video games, and tabletop games. I'm really glad to be here. Hi, I'm Red. I am a book, movie, video game, and world building enthusiast. It's kind of the short uh, version of it. I'm also an editor here at the uh, World Building Magazine. And uh, enjoy being on podcast, hearing the sound of my voice. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have you guys on here. I think I'm the only person who didn't mention anything about world building. Can I have another do-over? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Diva! <laughs> so to get us started off on talking about the magical ecology, I, I guess we can kind of just start off with why you would add magical things into the ecosystems of your setting. So I really like magical plants because I feel like people constantly think about the magical creatures in their world. You know, the number one example being dragons. You know, every fantasy world has to have dragons. A whole bunch of sci-fi worlds include them. They're just really cool and they're fun to play with. And it's fun to try and iterate on this uh, fabulously popular creature. Um but I feel like there isn't a lot of emphasis put on the plants of a given world. Uh, so, you know, when we're looking at what we're building, you know, let's say there's a, a craggy region, a whole bunch of mountains where this dragon lives and whatever. Um, if those are just regular mountains, then that's fine. But uh, you can really add a lot of character to your world if you have some kind of magical ferns or uh, trees that are growing in this region. You know, maybe something where a normal plant can't grow. Uh, the elevation is too high, for example, or it's too dry. Uh, maybe they have adapted to live off the magic around them or use the magic around them to bait prey like a Venus flytrap. Uh, there are just so many different ways you can go about it that I don't think people naturally gravitate toward or explore nearly as much as they should. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that's a byproduct of our attempts. Uh, I guess I just uh, 
our history of liking uh, fantasy to be relatively uh, predictable, very uh, you know European in in mood and setting, and so we often really only go with uh, with fantasy plant life when it comes to things like sci-fi instead. Uh, I guess a fictitious plant life would be a better description. Um, you see a lot of alien word worlds there, a lot of alien worlds that end up with uh, with really interesting plant life but yeah you rarely see it in fantasy and it's kind of a shame because there are a lot of really cool places that that could be played with and uh and again it's so uncommon that i mean it would definitely be something really neat to set your world apart yeah and i think part of it is the um the nature of a creature which is dynamic it is active you can interact with it uh it can be an antagonist or a protagonist and there's a lot of uh, appeal in that. Whereas in a plant, what we naturally think of as a plant, it's probably not a protagonist. It's probably not an antagonist. It's probably, if anything, a tool, uh, some sort of means to an end. And that's if it's lucky. Uh, most of the time, it's just window dressing on the scene. Uh, so, and you know, it doesn't have to be that way, especially when we consider things like magical ecology, where it can basically be whatever you want it to be. Um, you know, so many worlds and different types of media have some sort of plant that can attack the protagonist or the, uh, the player, things like that. Um, you know, who says it can't uproot itself and walk around, you know, that's how we have, uh, ants and creatures like that. Um, that's kind of getting into the deeper end of things, I think, but, um, yeah, there's just a lot of room to explore with it. And it's, I think because of that natural lack of dy dynamism, um, we just kind of forget about it. I, I definitely agree with that, especially when you said, um, we mentioned about it being generally just set dressing. Because even if you look at the Ur example of fantasy, essentially, with the Lord of the Rings, you you have all these different little plants. Uh, you have the white flowers that grow on the tombs and edoras. You have king's foil, which can heal people, but they don't really do much other than appear for a scene and then dress it and then leave. Yeah, like if that plant can only heal people and it doesn't in that one scene, that's great. It's kind of no better than a hammer that you would use to build a house. It, you use it. With it. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So I guess like the natural question to that is how do you make a plant dynamic? How do you make it not just a piece of the background? I know that definitely one way would be to take the uh, James Cameron's avatar approach where the plant, the great tree kind of is alive and, and is a part of the world. I, th I always found that pretty, pretty cool that it was like roots between all living things. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that. I, I think I, like one thing that sticks out to me is the world of Avatar, um, especially though the the animal life and the plant life. I remember this scene where uh, some of the main characters are running through a field of these plants that like uh, reacted to their touch and kind of sunk back into this um, either hole or like a a sheath of some kind. 
uh, and then like it creates this very beautiful scene where they're running through these like alien magical fields. Um, but yeah, I, the the tree being a part of the entire forest uh, and kind of life itself there was a, a big part. It doesn't that come back a little bit though to um, the old myths about Yggdrasil or something? Yeah, that his roots were connected to all yeah. worlds. Yeah, I think the thing that's important to to bear in mind here is that um, you can do these fun one-off things. I mean, for instance, this isn't technically magical ecology. This is this is more on the sci-fi side of things. But uh, the uh, if you haven't seen Titan AE, oh yeah, no, yeah, Titan AE has got this uh, excellent world that's got just a bunch of uh, these like vine-like plants over water that hold these giant, uh, I can't remember if it's hydrogen or helium or whatever, balloons, basically. They use them as a, as a means to, they're improvised explosives, basically, as they're being chased by a bunch of other aliens. They blow them up. Uh, and so, like, you can do those fun one-off things. Like, uh, don't get us wrong, you know, we're not saying that you shouldn't do these one-off things and use them in, in your setting for a brief bit. But uh, the thing to bear in mind is, just like in the Avatar example, uh, your ecology can inform more than just your story for a brief moment. Um, the important thing to bear in mind with Avatar is that you have the the giant home tree uh, for them, and it's you know it got those beautiful hammocks and stuff like that that they, uh, they they you know wrap themselves in every night. But it's like it's a part of their culture to to keep all that uh, to utilize what the nature gives them, uh, and that they can give the nature back in return. Uh, and so it's really uh, neat to see how you have one item informing another uh, when it comes to world building. And that's something you should always keep in mind in just about every way you world build. If you're going to introduce something new, uh, think about how it's going to affect everything else in your story uh, or your, your setting, I mean. I think definitely tying it in is in that in that sense red is is what separates uh the idea of the plant being a set dressing and the plant being part of the world absolutely it may feel like it's in the background but i mean when you when you really bother with the details that's when you know your, your content really comes alive it becomes less static and more dynamic like adam was saying yeah and you know you can even have them become characters too like avatar does it in a very subtle way where the tree is kind of always present not really active but it's kind of there the whole time um on a very similar note uh looking at pocahontas real quick um you've got a and this is it's been a long time since i saw the film so uh bear with me but as i recall there was a uh, character who was uh, just a tree that Pocahontas would go talk to and she'd get advice from and then start singing with or something. Um, uh, it's been a while. But uh, yeah, even like, you know, this old Disney film uh, was doing the same thing where, you know, turning the nature into a character. And this was kind of the personification of that. It is an interesting connection to kind of also bring into account like the sapient and sentient plants um, similar in vein are like Ents and 
uh, from Lord of the Rings or treants from uh, World of War uh, from World of Warcraft and trying to develop them into a character. So in the essence of developing and creating your own, there's a few key elements that I personally think that you should always look out for. And, but first and foremost is just kind of always taking a look at the real world for inspiration and learning about biology and ecology definitely helps learning about the natural world and some of the weirder things that can be out there. Um, one of my favorites that is like this idea of that is fantastical and magical and it's not real, but it is, is the Pando or the trembling giant or quaking Aspen as it's known tree, which the forest is one organism. All the trees are connected. All the trees are genetically similar and they essentially clone and copy themselves as a colony like bacteria, but they grow as massive trees. And if that doesn't scream fantasy, then I, I, I don't know what does. But then you have things like the dragon fruit tree or the dragon blood tree in Socotra, which is south of an island south of Arabia, which are these massive alien-looking trees that bleed this red nectar when you cut them. And it gave rise to, to so many different mysticism beliefs in the area. And it's just taking small pieces like that that are these cool ideas and finding how to tie them into the story. Yeah, as always, research is always going to be your best friend in trying to figure out what sort of uh, details that you can sell your your uh, your readers and players on. Uh, but on top of that, too, is it also is an excellent place to just get ideas in general. It doesn't even have to be anything crazy either. I mean just look at flamingos which are you know born gray and turn pink just based on their diet you have those uh those variables in play um you have biology that's you know can be super simple like the flamingo or just as crazy as having an entire forest that's one living organism you know yeah for sure um and I think once you know a little bit about biology, you can kind of adjust it to suit your needs. Uh, there's this really cool, uh, I think they call it a speculative, speculative biology magazine called Almost Real. Uh, I haven't gotten the chance to look too closely at it, but I've seen uh, some of the pages that they produce. And we actually got a chance to interview one of the creators of it. Uh, Jay Eaton in one of our issues in World Building Magazine from last year, uh, which is super exciting. Um, basically, uh, this guy knows about biology super well and really just takes that knowledge and puts it into, you know, how do I create these fantasy creatures and create these alien things that actually look alien and not like uh, different versions of what we already have here on earth. Um, there's a couple of screens you can find posted around online. Just, I I'd definitely check it out just as a reference, uh, inspiration, stuff like that. I, uh, I can't say I'm really big into kind of environments in my world. I tend to focus on characters and some such. However, uh, what I did learn is that when you need something to like set the tone for for your world, to kind of show people 
hey, this is this is what my place is all about. Um, inserting, not exactly just terrain, but actual like set pe- set pieces to it. Like you mentioned, different animals, different plants, and the like. It really helps to show. It really helps to. It really helps to show that it is a living, breathing world. Sorry, I'm I'm ranting a little bit. Uh, I lost my train of thought. But yeah, the living world. Um, what I've done sort of is um, kind of go with the food chain example, where I'll show like, oh, these so and so are going, and as you travel, you see this large hulking creature um, chasing after this much smaller nimble creature and then kind of either succeeding or not. And that harkens to, what's the best way to put it? Uh, that predatory prey relationship that we see in like on Animal Channel or something like that. But also kind of keeping realistic that if you exert too much effort trying to do something um, as a as a predator, you're probably going to be on the losing end even once you get your uh, your your fees. So I like getting those little set pieces in there like that. Yeah, and, and playing with the, those evolutionary ideas that like in order to be a predator, you have to, you know, have a certain set of skills in order to catch a certain kind of prey is very uh, is a very smart way to go about it, too. Um, regardless of whether or not evolution is a thing in your world, uh, everything is in some fashion adapted to what it does i mean that that doesn't change for any species both uh both animal and plant um that's that's one of the cool things about avatar is that uh, they they did take the time to go and you know actually think think their think their plant life and animal life alike uh through very thoroughly Yeah, that's I think I like what you said about the what both of you said about how you kind of design creatures for the food chain. Uh, it's it's fun to think of these animals that are very uh, good at hiding or very good at hunting and all this kind of stuff. But like the, this whole thing is uh, it's a balance. It's a relationship between different creatures within the ecosystem. So. Uh, I think it's definitely a really good exercise once you have one creature. Uh, like, for example, just go back to the archetypical dragon. Uh, okay, so you have this giant lizard that can fly and breathe fire. Um, now, what can it not get? Like, what resists the fire? What can outrun it flying or burrow into the ground? How do things get away from it? And that's a really good way to build for example, the herbivores in that setting. And then once you have those, okay, what do they eat? Um, What plant life is around and how does that plant life continue to survive even though these things want to eat it? Um, Do we have grass that uh, when it matures, the blades of grass become extremely sharp or something? I don't know. Um, But like, how, how do things go on the offense and defense? And that can be a really good prompt to get started writing about or designing a whole group of creatures. Yeah, especially in a magical ecology, because I mean, like you can, 
or a magical ecosystem, you can get some really fun things going. Another like thing that I don't see people trying to do too often. I mean, it happens. So you can probably come up with a few examples, but something that I, I can't say I've seen too often, let alone in mainstream uh, media is, uh, you know, animals that can use the same magic that humans can. Um, because it's a super fun way to play with, well, if, you know, I've got a small and slow prey, uh, is there some sort of magic trick that'll allow it to get away from uh, some vastly superior predator just to make your ecology that much more interesting? Yeah, or inversely, a group of people or a predator that relies on magic, maybe there's something that prevents them from using it. Um, maybe it like magic within a radius around it just doesn't work. Uh, so that's something you can play with too. Again, every, every, uh, every like tie in you have should be bi-directional to your, to something else. Uh, whatever informs one thing should inform the other. It's a really fun way to play with stuff. I do think that when you get to magic, that that's what's kind of a slippery slope just because, uh, What's the best way to put it? You can do anything with magic. So, um, yeah, like I, I get what you're saying, but it is definitely a slippery slope. But I mean, it like most things needs to be, uh, you know, tempered with with uh, some amount of balance in your world. I mean, you can't just have a magic that lets you do every. Oh, I mean, you can, but like having a magic that lets you do everything, there's got to be some sort of. Uh, I guess uh, logical rule set, at least in the background. So I mean, either, yeah, either something that constrains it or something that is its foil to keep it leveled. Right. It's just like the same idea of playing uh, fast and loose with science. It's it's a thing you can do in fiction, but you got to be careful doing it because oftentimes it feels cheap. It's not to say that you can't have a creature that can do anything, but it is that idea that. Uh, at that point, I mean, you're not really working with a creature anymore. You're basically working with a god. Like, yeah, I think pretty much anything when you put in magic, it's going to be that question is, why, if it's so powerful, why isn't so-and-so ruling the world? Or if it's so powerful, why isn't this creature being an utter terror? Or perhaps that is the reason that they are being curbed, is that as a reaction, I guess this is the point where we get to, like, um, sapiens, uh, sapien species, like humanoids that can perhaps... Um, Right now, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking of Attack on Titan. Though technically, I don't think that's exactly magic. Um, but it's pretty much that same reason is that the world reacts and people react perhaps defensively to something that's clearly aggressing on their livelihood. And, um, well, I guess they're, they're kind of, a, I guess the Titans from Attack on Titan are sort of technically monstrous creatures of themselves. Uh, of themselves. All I know about Attack on Titan is that there are some big people, and to fight them, you need zip lines. Turbo jet zip lines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the zip lines seem kind of cool. <laughs> so I think this kind of comes down to the, the concept of what to change. When you're creating things to fit your new magic ecology, you have to look at what in our world do you want and what do you want to change and this can be you know 
pretty simple with the concept of I want giant titans that eat people or I want a flying dragon-like monster that I can stick my hair tentacle into and mind control. Sounds <laughs> so weird out of context. <laughs> but let me let me just get my hair tentacle in there real quick. Hey, I had a rat tail for 10 years. I cannot tell you how many jokes I got after Avatar came out. I can't believe you cut it after Avatar came out. That that drive me to cut it. <laughs> hey, it got me a it got me a my role in an improv theater. Everyone else there used me. <laughs> oh my! So I got one, like one dragged thing, in. One thing on that note, though, I really like about the creatures in Avatar. Uh, when you look at the herbivores and the carnivores, do you see kind of a consistent patterning of how their eyes work? Um, this isn't a hundred percent across the board, but Generally, the herbivores all have four eyes, which is advantageous because they can see in a wider angle around themselves. This is already the case with herbivores uh, in our world. You know, like sheep have eyes on the sides of their head uh, so that they can see around themselves almost entirely. Um, then you've got things like carnivores, which are uh, like cats and uh, dogs, and their eyes are a little more front-facing. A human's eyes are a little more front-facing. Um, they're designed to kind of lock on to our prey and focus on it. And so in James Cameron's Avatar, uh, in that world, you've got these carnivorous creatures. Uh, I'm not going to remember any of the names, but... Uh, I remember toward the end of the film, there's a uh, six-legged panther-looking creature. Yeah, the Thanatar. Yes, I will take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the Thanatar, it's, uh, it's only got those two eyes, from what I can recall. Uh, and, you know, I'm somewhat speculating here, but... Um, I believe that's because it's a carnivore and because in theory it's adapted over this, you know, however long it's been around to only really need to focus on a target. And so they don't need that wider range of vision that the four eyes granted them at one time. So those kind of evolved over time and, you know, the creature no longer has them. Um, but it's got this really lean muscular body to, uh, sneak around to pounce to attack. Uh, it's got these eyes that are able to kind of laser focus on what it's going after. Uh, everything feels very intentional, which I really appreciate about it. They even have sensory quills. It turns out. I mean, so like, yeah. I mean, there's all there's a lot of really fun things to play with. Um, because like even then, so like the sensory quills are, uh, you know, they. They don't explain it in the movies. Uh, I'm pretty sure they don't explain it anywhere, but like they basically are something they can use biologically, but no one really knows what they're for exactly. But on top of that, too, it also provides a much more menacing appearance for for these, you know, giant, already scary looking six legged panther things. But like that's the fun thing is like there's not necessarily any one thing on a on a creature or plant that only has one function. You can you can mix and match. Uh, yeah, just like a, like a so, so yeah, like fun. a butterfly's wings. Even uh, you know they're functionally for flying, but 
So many of them are intended to warn predators. I am venomous. So many are intended to trick tr uh, predators that it is the venomous breed when it's really not. Um, you know, there's all these different variations, of course, some for camouflage. So yeah, absolutely. You know, as much as you can have one part of an animal or a plant perform multiple functions, that's absolutely fantastic. Or, or you can have a part of an animal that doesn't make sense. Um, what's the best way to put it? <laughs> what's the, you mean like the uh, platypuses? The red panda. Red the red panda. panda? Like, why do they exist? Yeah, <laughs> the, the whole thing is the one part that doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it's they're like darn that, cute. What was it? It's like a, my friends say a, the koala, uh, the slot, like these are creatures that exist because of a simple, simple, uh, simple solution. They, they don't have a predator. <laughs> Somehow, for whatever reason, no one wants to touch them. Or they have been blessed by um, the evolutionary, uh, evolutionary luck to have developed in a place that has uh, no one that really wants to, you know, kill them off. Um, so I think while it's also cool to have those creatures that are specifically like uh, they have a purpose. They have cool, cool shit about them. They have cool things that they can do because they have adapted and evolved over time to do those, um, to do those tasks. Whether it's be a hunter or to escape being hunted, I think it's also cool to have animals that sometimes are just out there. Unless you really get creative with what you can put in your world, when you realize my um, this particular terrain would be so and so for for like maybe a koala analog and. They only really exist if no one or nothing else really wants to, you know, touch them. And I guess if no one burns a eucalyptus equivalent. I suppose our food chain advice kind of falls apart with that suggestion. <laughs> so fun fact to make the platypus even more terrifying in real life. Um, it's It doesn't have a predator because it has it's venomous and it actually can yeah, have a stinger for venom on its uh, one of its webbed hands or both. Of them, yeah. I think like Got it, it has a it has a defense mechanism, which is one of the few things you take into account when you make an animal. But what does it do? What does the poison do? Or what does the platypus? Oh, the, the defense mechanism in general. Yeah, I mean, that is one to, like, but an elephant has, well, actually, it's kicks, because the tusks are for mating. Um, the elephant... In yeah, the elephant itself is a defense mechanism. <laughs> you know, like that that's the key though, is that large mammals, the idea is that they existed in such great numbers because they're so sturdy and able to defend themselves with just kicks. Like it's it's a deterrent because it can instantly kill most small predators. Like uh, imagine a wild dog trying to kill an elephant just by itself and get lightly kicked and fly twenty feet. That's why wild dogs hunt in packs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just remember, humans, at a certain point, looked at the giant mammoth and said, I'm going to kill that thing. I'm going to kill all that thing. We're, let's be real. Human beings have always been thrill seekers. <laughs> That's it, plain and simple. It didn't start off with any amount of anyone saying, ah, you know, we're really hungry. Let's kill a thing. Let's be real. It totally started off with some dude who's like, yeah, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna kill that thing. And it turns out it makes good jerky. Who knew? Sure. Who knew? The sheer <laughs> terror of endurance hunting, where you just follow it. You follow it till it dies. Till it dies, yeah. Now, uh, something else that I don't see uh, played with too much in uh, fantasy ecology that I actually weirdly wish would be played with a bit more. And, and the reason I, I, I know why it's not played with, uh, but you could in a, in a modern fantasy setting is things like parasites, uh, you know, microorganisms. Ooh. There is this really fascinating, and I apologize, I'm getting off of our list, but uh, this just like popped into my mind when we talked about things like small predators. But like we, uh, I, I studied this, uh, this microorganism called Toxoplasma gondii uh, a few months back. And it is this fascinating parasite that burrows its way into the brain, uh, into the brains of mice and rats, and it plays with their instincts to make them get eaten by cats. Yet, uh, rats and mice, uh, quite rationally, have an instinctive fear of cats, uh, and they can uh, usually determine if a cat's in the area, usually from things like uh, the smell of cat urine or you know just the smell of a cat in general, period. Um, but there is this parasite called Toxoplasma gondii that uh, once it's in the brain of these rodents, will actually train them to, instead of becoming afraid of cats, believe it or not, they get aroused by cats because of this parasite. And so it trains their brains into thinking instead of, you know, be afraid of a cat to approach it. And the reason it does this is because Toxoplasmic Gandhi can only uh, reproduce inside the intestinal tract of a cat. So these rats and mice get eaten by cats, which then allow the, the parasite to reproduce in the cat. Now, the really cool part that I would love to see someone play with at some point is there are theories out there that the reason that humans are so enamored with cats is because we also can get Toxoplasma gondii in our brains. Now, I'm not going to say that anyone anyone gets aroused by a cat, but it is capable of altering brain chemistry to make you think positively about cats, which is just fascinating. This is some serious cats versus dogs stuff. Like, remember that movie? The person who came up with this theory must have been a dog person. <laughs> it's not a theory. It's it's science. Well, the, the theory that humans could carry this yeah we can actually and it's very dangerous to uh pregnant women uh that's why um if you have uh you have a pregnant woman in your life don't let her change the litter box uh that that is uh you know unsolicited health advice from red yeah i think that's a really interesting route to go down to i know um what comes to mind when you're talking about that was uh, The Last of Us, the PlayStation game by Naughty Dog. Uh, they took the concept of the cordyceps virus, no, fungi. It was a fungi. Um, and what that does basically is uh, abduct an ant and make it, you know, in the case of an ant, it makes it climb uh, up a stalk and it basically stays there until it dies and the plant like comes out of its body and sprouts the fungus and then spores go everywhere. Um, and then the, they just basically took that concept of how it works with ants and then applied it to humans. What if we could catch that? Um, 
how would our bodies change? How would the spores spread in that case? Uh, what would society uh, look like when that began and after it's been happening for a while? Um, so yeah, that, that entire game's premise is based around a fungus slash infection. Um, and, you know, it boils down to just zombies, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of different ways you could take that in terms of, uh, you know, viruses and um, parasites that can change its host. Yeah, and I, just bringing this up, I'm already like, oh my gosh, I've got ideas now. <laughs> um, but like, it would be interesting to see what sort of um, what sort of repercussions that would have on a fantasy environment, you know? To, to have a parasite that can in some fashion play with magic or your ability to use magic and things like that. Again, if you have a modern enough setting, you could really do some fun things there that, again, haven't been explored yet, really. Um, and that's kind of the really fun thing about world building anything is is trying to find those things that people haven't thought of before or done before and saying, how could I how could I play with this? Um, since, you know, these are very real things, but we're trying to turn them into made up ones. Uh, you can do some really fascinating stuff when you uh, do some research and learn about these these you know things that you never thought of before. Would never think about on the day to day. <laughs> Whenever you mention parasites, and though technically it's not just parasites that do this, I just keep thinking of invasive species, like doing some research on how invasive species work. I think, yeah, I feel like that would pretty much, I, I that might be the easier way to go about it, is because you don't really need a modern setting. You can probably put it anywhere. Um, like, um, I think, what's a good one? Uh, the rabbits in Australia, um, the toads in Australia, <laughs> a lot of things in Australia. Um, and I also think of like um, as algal blooms, red algae, something like that. One of those. Someone correct me. Yeah, where it's just it ruins. Uh, essentially, it ruins the ecosystem when this um, a foreign species of flora or fauna is introduced that has no natural predators and is capable of um, essentially reproducing at an increased rate and ultimately sucking out the resources from the ecosystem from the local fauna and flora. Um, trying to think of a good example or it, it might not be as done i'm pretty sure it's been done but i'm just trying to think of a good one right now it's not that, just real life yeah i can't say i think i can think of a fictitious one but it is one of those things where uh you know that's another thing that we don't we don't think about too often that uh, we've been in uh introducing species to different uh, ecosystems you know for as long as humans have traveled because um, they you know got things like dogs and stuff like that that have that have traveled with man since the dawn of time chickens chickens yes chickens horses in some yeah. parts of the world yep horses. horses in america specifically when right we we get to the midwest and the west and we find that there's horses there and everyone's like oh see they, they lived here and not to realize that they escaped the spanish like 100 years or 200 years before that and just spread like wildflower uh, wildfire because what the heck's gonna attack or wildflowers <laughs> more like wildflowers too yeah actually <laughs> which also could be invasive you ecology is is really fascinating thing to look into because a lot of things apply to both plants and animals alike nature is a balance it is the act of weighing two sides so that way nothing wins because when one side wins everything else dies and then that one thing 
most likely dies as well. Until humans show up and then introduce an invasive species. Yeah. Maybe the humans are the invasive species. What's that? Maybe the humans are the invasive species. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I mean, yeah. sure. The other thing too that doesn't get uh, doesn't get brought up much in there are three things, three words I've said in this podcast probably about twelve times already. So if you can count how many times I've done that, kudos to you guys. We'll make a uh, compilation. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things that that doesn't get brought up all that often is uh, also the effect that the that your ecology can have on the terrain. Um, you know, you've got the wolves that change rivers kind of premise uh it's like everyone's favorite example and has made it into thousands of textbooks but uh again just find all these really interesting things that you can look into and find out how your altered ecology is going to shape cultures religions and and environments yeah that just makes me think about um pretty basic example but uh beaver's den can reduce the flow of a river block off a creek or whatever now on that note too uh think about what happens when uh you know speaking of human beings uh who's the guy who's saying that you should eat or you know smoke these plants and animals Uh, what kind of effect does that have You know, uh, humankind has got a very long and interesting history of wanting to study the effects uh, of plant life when consumed in different ways. Mm-hmm. They probably know a lot more if everything was safe to consume. But unfortunately, the ones who tested probably could not report their findings. Um, but then you find other uses for them, you know, poisonings mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, maybe even medicinal remedies. Or even just vegetables. Like, if you don't prepare certain vegetables in a certain way, they're they're utterly gonna make you sick, if not kill you. I can't remember one. There, there's a there's there's one that's puffer specific. fish, not a plant, but an animal. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that right. Is it rhubarbs that are um, poisonous? Their leaves. Yes, I believe so. You have to like prepare them a certain way or something. Um, there's a, there's a lot of plants like that. And I think, uh, Dino just, or I think Tyler just said as well, uh, dyes are a big part of that as well. Like you're not, you're not getting any like substance out of the plant or animal, but like, um, purple dyes come from snails originally, I believe. And, uh, indigo comes from the indigo plant. Um, and you know, those are harvested and grown uh quite uh frequently to you know dye people's clothes or curtains or uh, create pigments for paints you know whatever people needed these things for not uh, they're not like essential requirements of life or whatever like we've been talking about you know food chain and all that but uh you know it becomes important to a culture Oh yeah, and it, it informs an economy too, in a way. Uh, you got things like pomegranate that is, uh, you know, not only a really good food, and it's also a, you know, mythologically important fruit uh, to ancient cultures. 
but also too uh, it's used for pigmentation for dyes and stuff like that and so that made pomegranate super super valuable to just a ton of cultures and it's not like pomegranate itself was necessarily a rarity it's just the fact that it being such a useful and important thing to so many cultures made it a hot item to have mm -hmm. and something similar is going on with avocados nowadays um good old avocado toast but uh more seriously it's it's actually becoming a uh, often smuggled goods between uh, at least from what i can hear uh, between the u.s uh, uh mexican borders it's actually st becoming competitive with um drug trades or instead of cartels shipping drugs over they're shipping over avocados for mm -hmm. a lot of profit um so <laughs> it's not necessarily just about that uh about the flora itself but rather the the effects of it and how people make it so so um so it's like that sounds a bit ridiculous but um unless you have no people in your world of course but barring that society that has a means to access will find a way to make use of things they don't need or things that otherwise wouldn't be vital to survival You know, it's funny though. Um, it was mentioned that by Adam that you have you have um, crushing snails for purple dye, and you you don't think when you mix it with what Amake said with what do you have to do for for survival, because once you reach past the survival point of nature and society's culture, at that point you want to survive in style. Yeah. Exactly. So you want to do something like wear something that's fancy and purple. And, you know, there's legitimately been a war over the color purple. I feel like I've heard that. Yeah. The first Punic War between Rome and Carthage was fought over the secret to make purple. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this was before the dye was actually, what's it called? Because eventually you found a way to make purple without being super expensive. But before then, yeah. it was the color of royalty because it was so rare and valuable. Yeah. And that brings up another point as well, you know, since we're talking about where you find these pigments. And um, at least originally, they were all from nature in one way or another. Uh, the question comes up when you start introducing magic or alien life into your uh, ecology what other pigments can you find are there other colors that don't exist on our spectrum that another creature might see um or if you know we're just talking about humans and they're on a separate world uh where do they find those dyes so i think that's a interesting question to ask because like we've talked about, like the color purple started a war. Uh, it changes how people are seen and uh, affects the economy or trade. Uh, so yeah, that's a small question and something that we might not think about, but I think it matters a decent amount. It kind of circles back to what was mentioned earlier. Um, the question is, can I smoke it? Well, there, of course. <laughs> My point was that, of course, there's stuff with medical marijuana being a thing, but someone out there legitimately thought 
or perhaps by serendipity or sheer curiosity, um, this plant, if you were to set it on fire and inhale the fumes or whatever that it exuded, what would happen? Um, so I, I don't claim to know what exactly was going on through that individual's head. However, whether they intended to or not, I'm sure they started something. They started something that humans will continue for um, will continue for years and years to come, sparking wars, uh, fueling economies, and of course now kind of being a major um, social. I think in in some cases, a major social uh, kind of point of contest. And now it's only going to be overtaken by the avocado. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> but you know, like, this brings up an excellent point, though, Amakane. Uh, another thing that you're touching on here is uh, what cultures decide to ingest and not ingest. Uh, and I guess that also ties into religions, too. I mean, that's a large part of culture, so it's kind of the same umbrella. But um, that's something that you also don't often see played with too much. Uh, we have a lot of religions here on Earth that, you know, choose to abstain from things like drugs or from certain chemicals, or in some cases, an entire, uh, you know, uh, line of, of food. You know, you got uh, people who can't eat pork or people who don't eat beef. Or shellfish. If there were no, no grapes. Not, I'm not familiar with the shellfish one. Uh. Jewish. It's not kosher. Oh, okay. You don't know what they eat, they're bottom feeders. Got it. Not super familiar with kosher food. If there were no grapes, guys, what what would be the blood of Christ? What other fruit would be so wrathful? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, this guy. The grapes of wrath is what he is referencing. Yeah. For all those who do not know. Yep. That was excellent. And it was so perfectly timed that I hate myself. We got to bring in that good dad energy. <laughs> so speaking of good energy, when you are creating these creatures or these plants, you kind of have to understand what they're being used for as we've kind of beat around the bush for a moment about. You have... A bunch of different things that you can keep in mind for plants, such as does it have utility use like lumber, which can be burned, pulped, turned into paper or beams for housing? Can it be used in medicine? Does it have some herbal remedy contingent to it, such as ginseng? And there's a thousand different ideas in what you can use. You could go the King's Foil route for Lord of the Rings, and it helps in healing. And it's just small things that, while set dressing, it does add something to your world, and every little piece can be built upon. Personally, I find animals a little more difficult. I find that there's a couple of categories for when you want to think about an animal. Um, First is prey versus predator. In an area, what is the animal that exists and tries to just not be eaten. This is your real-life antelopes, elephants, etc., that kind of just live in the wild and want to be left alone. Then you have your predators, who are the ones that want to eat those, and they're carnivores, and they're the ones that will generally be antagonists and enemies and stories and games. You have scroungers and scavengers, things like buzzards, hyenas, rats, and squirrels. 
which it seems odd to put those all together, but really they look for things that have already fallen and are in the world and to collect it and eat it. Or you can shake things up yeah. and say plants are the predators. <laughs> now that, that would be terrifying. Now think about it. Yeah, like a, the forest that eats. Giant plants everywhere. The consuming orchard. Veggie tales gone dark. Oh no! <laughs> where's where's my gothic horror Veggie Tales world? <laughs> As we mentioned here, you have parasites, which are things that feed off of other things, and this works for the the well plant world, but for funguses, which they're almost all parasites. They feed off the energy of another living thing, but you could make them feed off of rock, and it would be just as terrifying. Giant living mushroom man that consumes the minerals out of rock. Uh, Machinate called this a called this a problem earlier, but with magic, anything's possible, and I think that's a plus. It's not a problem. It's more like a safe warning that you can do a lot, but simultaneously it, it'll open up the it'll open things up to a why, and also if so and so is doing that, then why doesn't so and so do this? That that's sort of why I'm thinking. Like for example, I, I think you... what we're, I think what we're getting to is again, which we come back to so often on this podcast, is the concept of keeping things consistent. Oh yeah. There's going to be variation. There's going to be differences. It's a given. It is necessary, but you can't have one creature that's super powerful and can wield magic and all this stuff, and then just nothing around it can. Yeah, and and you know I'm all for soft magic, but you've got to you've got to play your cards right. You still have to have some sort of logic uh, back there that you you can at least explain if you have to. If you don't have those rules in place, then suddenly your world loses that consistency because now there's just gaping holes everywhere. Rule of cool is great, um, but you do still have to color slightly within the lines somewhat. Yeah, and I think part of that will be kind of the um kind of the other side of whatever it is that's has like whatever a plant or an animal that might have magical capabilities, kind of the other side of what's threatening it or what isn't threatening it or what is using it. Um for example, um just to harken back to Tyler's example of the fungus that can eat the minerals from rocks. If we think about a fungus like that existing in let's say a mountainous terrain region where there is a society of individuals that may or may not be dwarves <clears throat> residing in a mountain. What would happen if such a fungus existed in their uh, in their homelands? Would it be something that they use because it's easier to break down rocks for um, creating perhaps um, either tools or uh, structures, carving out new cities and buildings? Or would it be something that if they lack the ability to actually deal with it or eliminate it, would it ruin their livelihood, destroy their homes and such. Do they use it to carve the tunnel or does it collapse the tunnel? Mm-hmm. And how do they keep it in check? There's, there are so many fun avenues to take uh, with this kind of stuff. Well, if you have magic involved, you could have it building the tunnel. Like adding rock to it. I don't know. A druid controlling the fungus. There you go. A fungus druid made of fungus. 
That's actually a thing in 5e now, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, there was a, an, an, an arcana uh, release that had this fungus druid that lets you turn your body into spores. Um, so I guess that's also a fun thing, is that when you have these creatures and plants at your disposal, it, it gives you more to play with as well if you are, like let's say, in a tabletop game. Um, not only the types of things that you can throw at a party, um, but also how players or how whoever is um, interacting with your work you know, might deal with it or might react to it or what they could do with it. Th those kinds of ideas that can both um, intrigue someone into further engaging with what, whatever you're writing, but also entertain them while doing so. It's adding small things like this that just kind of help to continue to flesh out the world, which is always the best part about world building. So to just round out the list, I'd prey versus predator, scroungers and scavengers, parasites, animals that are prizes, so things that you want to capture and hunt, like beavers, sable, and snails, as we had talked. Um, droving animals, which are the animals that you essentially would have on a farm, like sheep and cattle. Um, husbandry or labor animals like ox and horses, things that animals or plants that have a purpose and an active use to work alongside humans, and companion animals like dogs and cats that live alongside humans. So all these different things, if you just kind of think of them together, you can fill out new and unique species of animals and plants and fungi to populate your world with that it'll feel like they have a purpose and a use and that'll help with the, the cell with the plausibility of it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a phenomenal checklist to have. Uh, if you haven't written down what Dino just listed off, you should. Uh, those are all basically the very generalistic view uh, of roles that most uh, creatures and plants take in a, in a world and filling those out. is just, it's a beautiful way to make your, your world just super dynamic and, and very, uh, it just lets it breathe in a, in a way all its own. But where do geese fit in all this? Parasites. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I've seen Untitled Goose Game. They're predators. There's a lot of Canadian geese near me. They, they poop everywhere. <laughs> Dude, and they're vicious. They, they are. are. Yeah. And they go and they hang out near the hospital of all places. <laughs> they sense they the weakness. The, they feed off the misery and sorrow. Of <laughs> yeah. Great. Geese are are and bread. psycho are psychopomps and they consume the dead. Done. Hey, you joke about it, but that's that is that's that's how you that's how you get those ideas though. Uh, just circumstantially animals hanging around in a place is exactly how, you know, a lot of cultures and religions have informed their mythologies. Uh, you know, you happen to see a raven after someone dies, and suddenly the ravens become this, you know, terrifying thing. Um, it's funny. It's it's a it's a funny joke, but it's also true. I await until the geese mythology reaches the annals of history forevermore. That's that's what we're gonna have to put into uh, Haroma now. The collaborative world we have going is is psychopompic geese. We'll uh, have to write a short story and toss that in the magazine. Absolutely. <laughs> Crossover. <laughs> <laughs>
So to segue into our next topic, I would just like to bring up that you want a magical ecology in your story to set it apart, but what if your ma- your world doesn't have magic? Well, fear not, fellow listeners. For there are ways to make an environment seem magical without ever using magic in it. How do we do that? Well, you start off by adding things that existed that are freaking weird. We had kind of touched upon this earlier with the trembling giant, the massive tree that exists in real life that is one giant organism of a forest. But go further back in time. Find other things. Personally, I love dinosaurs. No one could ever guess that by having the nickname Dino. And they add a lot to a setting. And you don't necessarily need magic to have them. but dinosaurs feel too unrealistic for you does it feel too removed from the possibility of reality well fear not because i have something for you that will perhaps sell you better than anything else and that is the holocene period the period before the ice age the last ice age wowie zowie Sorry, I'm, I'm just getting into this advertisement mood. Yeah, I feel like I'm in the middle of a really <laughs> obscurely targeted infomercial. <laughs> I finally had to make an infomercial that targets me. It's I am the <laughs> We well, see you've been talking about world building. Well, have we got something I, for you? Can I interest you in megafauna? From things like the... So from things like Host's eagle, which hunted the massive moa, the flightless birds of New Zealand, and the Host eagle was itself massive. You also have things like the woolly animals, like the woolly rhino and the woolly mammoth, which were massive hulking animals that lived when humans did. And if we had just been a little more advanced at the time, we very possibly could have kept them as husbandry animals. It's in this time period that we got horses. But there were also other massive things like the dimetherium which is essentially like a massive just herbivore it kind of looks like a capybara mixed with a an elephant it's really kind of terrifying um you have things like the glyptodon which is essentially a massive armadillo the thing was like five feet tall six feet tall with this huge shell and this big head and some I think had clubs on the ends of their tails, like an ankylosaurus or like big bulbous growths that they would hit things with. And you have things like terrifying, just absolutely, in my opinion, terrifying predators like cave lions and saber cats, which are just these massive hunting animals that terrorized humans and probably formed a lot of the original stories we told to each other. Yeah. Another fun route to go to is to just, uh, you can even, work with creatures that are uh you know here on earth and try blending them together uh, avatar the last airbender uh, gets so much mileage out of this it's not even funny i have only seen like the first half of the show when you know saw maybe three creatures in there that i was like oh okay that's an interesting couple of animals to blend together um, i don't even remember what the heck it was it was like a bear cat or something like that um, owl bear. The flying lemurs. Owl bear. That's it, isn't it? I can't remember. It's not important. But like, uh, aren't owl bears kind of normal to D and D? They are. Okay, maybe that's what I'm mixing it with. Regardless, Avatar does this, and I discovered that there is a, just a giant list of these things. You've the, someone on the staff really liked armadillos, for instance. There's an armadillo. Anything. Uh, there are armadillo 
bears, armadillo lions, armadillo wolves. Uh, but then you also got some of the more random ones, like a koala otter. You got viper bats, uh, the really terrifying puma goats. Um, it's kind of, uh, it seems like a magical thing. Uh, but this is a great way to introduce magic into a setting without actually having to say, hey, there's magic here. Um, to make a setting seem magical, just kind of, you got to just toss at people things that aren't uh, normal. But the the upside to doing this blend together trick is it um, doesn't require a whole lot of uh, writing on your part. You can say, you know, koala otter and you know, that conjures up a picture in someone's mind of those two creatures mixed together. Um, and since it's not a natural thing, there's suddenly this, you know, like, ooh, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and it doesn't require too much work from you. Yeah, it's, it's a nice mix of familiarity as well as um, creating something new. So you're right, if it's just kind of set dressing for the scene, uh, and you're trying to kind of show them a little bit more of the world, then you can just kind of gloss over it and people will kind of understand, you know, they know what those two root animals are, so they can kind of put the pieces together. Um, you know, even more so in a show like Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, where, you know, you can see these creatures walking around and interacting with the environment, and you only need to see them for, like, two seconds to get the gist of it like you're good <laughs> um so yeah it's it does sort of feel like a cop-out because you're not really creating anything new and at that point why not just use actual koalas or actual bears or whatever the case may be let me just point out i'm not the one who, who pointed it out this time <laughs> I yeah, know, that's a criticism I have. I, I got I got ahead of you a little time. bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you're not you're not creating anything new. Why not just use the actual creatures? But if you've got a good reason for blending animals like this, uh, there's definitely a benefit in the fact that you don't have to explain it as as much as uh, you would have to explain like some mythical creature that you just made up. Um, well, yeah, and it doesn't require magic, really. Uh, it's one of the it's one of those weird gray areas where it's like your brain will accept a koala otter, uh, and it won't ask for some sort of like, okay, but how the heck did that come together? Like, what? Just koala, don't worry about it. What koala and otter <laughs> got together? Your brain doesn't do that, and that is one of the things that I'm not. I, I will admit does work in Avatar's favor is like you see that thing, and you're like, that's just that's cool, and I'm not seeking an explanation. And it doesn't require any magic to explain. So, I mean, it's a it's a nice middle ground for uh, someone who doesn't want to involve magic in their setting, but still wants to get that uh, that mysticism. And uh, they were still involved. able to create that fun moment where uh, I think it was the Earth King talks about his regular old bear, and everyone's just like, "Yes, <laughs> like like an like an otter bear." Nope, just a bear. <laughs> Weird. Those exist. <laughs> Makes you wonder where it came from. So, speaking of animals or combinations of normal animals, um, it doesn't hurt to just have, you know, just dogs or cats or horses. 
as dogs, cats, and horses in your world. It's all right to have something that seems common because it helps to accentuate the fact that these new creatures that you're introducing are, they might be exotic to everyone else, but at least there's a frame of reference for whether they are exotic in your world or or perhaps are kind of the pack mules, the normal forms of transport. Um, having that baseline can really help with understanding just for your audience. Absolutely. That that goes back to the uh, to the consistency thing. Yeah, if you're going to put a creature in your world and you give it a place, uh, make sure that you're selling that. So yeah, kind of just bringing this all together, you want to think, what can I put in my world? Why do I want to put this in my world? How it will affect my world? And why do I want this in the world? Because all those kind of coalesce together, as we've kind of talked about and extrapolated here, into the thought that does this creature add something to the narrative? Does this add something to the setting? Or does this add something to the scene? And each one of these can play different roles from the interesting animals of Avatar being plot relevant to just being something simple in the background talked once or twice about and kind of just kept in mind, like King's Foil and Lord of the Rings. And in the end, it's figuring out what you want to have it and if it is just, I want it just to have it, is the modus operandi behind you creating it. Which, honestly, that's just okay, too. Sometimes something's just cool, and you want it in your setting because it's cool. I'm guilty of that all the time. Oh, we all are. Yeah. Not Adam. He doesn't have dragons in his setting. What? Dragons. Just because I don't have dragons doesn't mean I don't have cool stuff. No, it, it does mean you die. It means you don't have cool <laughs> stuff. He they just says a dragon things. mixed with a goose. Oh my god. Isn't that actually, or isn't a dragon just a goose mixed with a lizard? Oh my gosh, I'm not gonna, can I, can I steal this? Can I make this the psychopomp of, of Haroma? <laughs> I'm just imagining smog with like a goose bill. <laughs> I am Hawk. Absolutely, I'm going to make a. I'm going to make Day draw it too, man. <laughs> Goose Dragon. This, this is absolutely a thing now. Untitled Goose Dragon game. <laughs> Goose Roda, man. Oh my God. Goose Ro Honk. I regret that. <laughs> <laughs> I regret that. On that note, I shall ask for last thoughts. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, I feel like we've covered a lot today. Good job, team. Um, yeah, so I guess just generally um, exploring your world through the lens of through the lens of its ecology, the creatures and uh, the plant life that's there. I think it's a really good way to expand on your setting. Um, and so much of what we've talked about today has related to uh, the various cultures that could be in that setting, you know, talking about various dyes, uh, the way that we hunt things, the various uh, things that we choose not to hunt or not to eat. Um, 
I think that it's just, it's all so interconnected that doing this kind of exercise and going down that list that Tyler mentioned earlier, uh, the, you know, prey versus predator, the scavengers, parasites, prize creatures, droving animals, husbandry, labor, and companion, you know, just going down there and figuring out what fits into this list. Um, what can I create that fits into it? And, you know, anything else that you might need for your setting. Um, that's going to be a great way to, at the same time, really figure out how your cultures work and uh, what's available to each of them. So um, that might be something that I do later. So uh, I sell a lot today, I think. I think I want to emphasize that things usually need a reason to exist um, because of how it interacts, whether it's fauna or flora. Um, how it interacts with the world will kind of determine what it's not only its use, but also whether it survives. Uh, more often than not, you have that kind of cycle of predator and prey, the food chain. But occasionally, you have things that don't really make sense, and that's just fine. Um, but even things that don't make sense, for example, um, Pleiopus, as we learned, actually has a reason for why it's, it's not extinct. Because they're venomous, they have a defense mechanism, even though they don't really do anything else. Uh, the other thing I think of is like a, and I, I, I'm surprised I didn't mention it earlier, but tardigrades, water bears, they're they're pretty cool, um, not indestructible in most cases, though recently apparently it's not not as clear cut as that anymore. But those kind of cool things just kind of pop at me because they're different. You expect something to just kind of die, and tardigrades don't really just do that very often. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that don't be afraid of doing real cool. Um, you will find ways to make something make sense. And if you can't make it make sense, it can still have a reason for existing. Uh, for me, it's just uh, the important takeaway is to do research, research, research. Uh, the more you know about a certain topic, the more it's going to help you flesh out uh, whatever it is that you want to flesh out. Um, this could be anything from culture to sociology, uh, just all the different factors that come into play when you introduce some sort of new species, whether that be plant or creature into your world. You can learn all sorts of uh, fun things about, uh, you know, your the world you actually currently live in while also finding out uh, cool things about the world that you're building. If I could give you one simple challenge, it's, uh, Find uh, find a, your favorite animal uh, and look it up uh, online. Go to places like Nat Geo. Uh, even Wikipedia is surprisingly good for finding uh, strange and trivial facts about creatures that you know and love. And uh, find some of your favorite facets about how they fit into the world, whether that be folklore or uh, how they fit into an economy or how people have used them over the years. And find a way to uh, work that into a creature of your own design. Uh, to work those roles into uh, into your world. Finally, to wrap it up, just would like to reiterate the idea of find something that interests you, whether it's a creature that once existed, currently exists, or it's a concept you'd like to see. And find a way to put it into your world, even if the entire reason you want it in there is just so it's there. Putting cool things into your world is for you because that's what you want to see and that's what you like.
and never forget that sometimes the easiest road to take is the funnest sometimes the easiest road to take is the funnest i'll leave you with a quote from susie Cassim. much of human behavior can be explained by watching the wild beasts around us they are constantly teaching us things about ourselves and the way of the universe but most people are too blind to watch and to listen thank you You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of World Building Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media, or feel free to come chat with us on the World Building Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep world building. <laughs> <laughs>